Let's keep that um, mood of prayer right now. Father, we ask you to help us to live the lyrics of that song in our lives. <clears throat> we recognize that Christ has said in his word that these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so it's possible, highly possible for us to mouth words that are meaningful and theologically correct, but they don't reflect the truth of our heart. And so, Lord, we want our, what we say that is true about you to be true about our hearts as well. So would you please help us today with the presence of your Holy Spirit? Lord, we ask that you would visit us with power, and we come here because we desire that you would transform our lives, that we would not be the same, that we would increasingly go from glory to glory, reflecting the face of Christ in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to show you um, off the top of this morning uh, who I'd been hanging out with this past week. So I have a picture up there that um, is going to pop up. Go back there. Here we go. I was hanging out with these guys um, this week, and uh, I didn't get the memo of the dress code. And um, <laughs> I wondered why you were like, I don't know. I don't know what this guy's talking about. Um, yeah, I didn't get the memo. So anyway, these are, are uh, pastors of the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt. And um, uh, don't let their garb alarm you. We have our own um, evangelical costuming as well, don't we? Some of you are wondering why I don't have a tie on this morning, for instance. So we have our own costuming as well. But interestingly, these men wear these costumes that wears Christ's reality on their sleeves in a country that Christianity is not very popular in. And so um, I'm wondering how many of us would walk around looking like this in the Middle East in these days. These men love the Lord. They are, uh, uh, they have, have, they're married, they have children, and uh, they uh, have come to know Christ in a personal way. I'm very convinced of that as we've been teaching them. And fascinating is that... Uh, um, in this uh, movement uh, that is ancient, in fact, uh, they would suggest to you that their roots are the original uh, uh, roots of the uh, original church and uh, have no reason there. The east uh, wing of the uh, other direction went west. And um, uh, fascinating reality is that uh, while not all of the leaders in their movement are what we would call born again, um, these men are, and they have succeeded in convincing the Pope of the Eastern, uh, Coptic Eastern Orthodox Church to use our curriculum, our evangelical curriculum material as the teaching, the core teaching material for all of the Coptic churches in Egypt. So it's quite a, quite a fascinating, amazing thing that has happened here. And I have a personal invitation to meet the Pope and next time I'm in Egypt.
not the Pope of Rome, but the Pope of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So that would be an interesting um, opportunity. Um, so that's who I was hanging out with, um, and I uh, got to experience what it's like to get a holy kiss from a bearded man. <laughs> Many bearded men, in fact, and um, not just one side, but both sides. So, you, so um, now I know um, what uh, Pastor Nick's wife has to put up with um, <laughs> all the time, and, and um, you know, I, I can... Uh, I can do without that part of things, but other than it was a they were warm, warm uh, individuals, love the Lord and, and great. But anyway, the, the next picture shows you the the the, the whole group, and um, these people are from the Middle East, and the uh, responsibility is that there's just under 50 people there. We teach them um, principles of Christian influence, and uh, their responsibility is to go and get 50 to 100 more and teach them. That's that's. Uh, why they come. We've invested in this as a church congregation. We've invested in this Middle East training. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had this as our project, if you remember, at our global conference. And so this is kind of the fruit of that. And it's amazing what's going on and what's happening and what they're doing. And uh, our role is to go there and give them, they already know the Lord. They understand the theology of what we're teaching them. But our role is to go over and help them to learn how they could actually teach this material to someone else. So we sort of they sort of um, uh, were um, examples of teaching, using illustrations, giving them ideas of how they could do this and how they can go and present it to others. So that's what we do. Next slide um, is what really fires me up because that's where they came from, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, imagine in the same room, loving the same Lord. And uh, I can tell you that these Arab-speaking Christians are among the warmest people in the world. Um, they once... They've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're in this family of God. Um, it is, I, I can tell you, and you know this, but heaven is going to be an amazing place. We are going to love heaven. Uh, I, I can't wait, and regularly when we're in these situations, and those of you who go various places in the world, and I, I listen, I highly recommend, you know that, that quite honestly, um, I would... One of the goals that, that is in my heart is that every single one of you would somehow, somewhere, get to a cross-cultural experience uh, with uh, God's people somewhere else besides the GTA, and, uh, and not America either. Florida doesn't count, all right? I know it's a cross-cultural experience, but it doesn't count. You've you got to go somewhere else. And I, I think it, it, I know it will change your life, and it will also set up your heart so that you can't wait for heaven. And uh, I certainly can. Um, next slide. Uh, one of the places I got to uh, take in because I wanted to do this is a place called Salamis, Cyprus. And for those of you who are theologically astute, you will know that this uh, particular site can be found in Acts chapter 13, verse 5. This is the site where intentional international mission began. This is the first place that Paul, Barnabas, and Mark went and started and launched the missionary enterprise. So uh, this was the starting line. So it was really exciting to be there at the, at the starting line. And I can tell you that, that Barnabas, Paul, and Mark uh, did an amazing job in the island of Cyprus. It is called the island of churches uh, because there are churches everywhere. And uh, yet they went in against high, uh, very passionate opposition. Barnabas himself was murdered here. And uh, his body was cast into a swampy area of the sea. 
His friends rescued him and uh, the few friends that he had, those he'd, he'd uh, led to Christ. And uh, his, his tomb is there. I went to visit that. And um, uh, Barnabas is a fascinating story. He, Barnabas was from Cyprus. And, uh, you know, he's the, uh, the son of encouragement. We know him. Uh, he helped Paul. Paul's the fiery guy wanting to, and fired Mark, you know, fired Mark on the journey. And, and Barnabas, uh, you know, kind of tried to, to, to calm the waters a little bit. But Barnabas was from Cyprus. And the first thing he wanted to do when he met the Lord Jesus Christ is go back to his country and tell his people about the Lord. And like I said, they covered the whole island and uh, God used them to do an amazing work to raise up in the, originally uh, an amazing Christian presence in the, on that island. One last picture I want to show you before we um, launch back into our, our sermon this morning. And uh, I wanted to show you a contrast between the new and the old, but that's a very, very old church site. That building dates back to 1100 AD, but what I want you to notice there is a very, very um, unwelcome particular structure. Do you see it there? Do you see the spire? It is no longer a church. It's a mosque and has been for about 400 years. Uh, what I wanted to point out to you is this is what's happening all over the island of Cyprus and has been for hundreds of years. But no doubt, this was a church that Barnabas and Paul probably planted, at least the carry-on of that congregation. And church upon church across the island of Cyprus is turning into a mosque. And I wanted to tell you that because most of us have not really paid attention to what's been going on in the world. And we aren't probably paying attention to what's going on in our own country. We're so far removed. But I want you to know that that particular site right there is very, very plausible in our country. In fact, I want to tell you something about the church property across the street. Uh, Lord willing, in a couple of days, uh, the uh, formal documentation of the purchase will be completed. In talking to the real estate agent who was watching, uh, was responsible for the sale of that property, he informed us that 70% of the inquiries on that church building were from Muslims who said to him, money is no object. So uh, while we, uh, by God's grace, and his work in our midst is expanding our ministry and we are in need of extra space. It seems to me that it is absolutely necessary that we buy that property and repurpose it or make sure that its purposes remain for the glory of God. I, I can't... It, it is crucial as, our, as the people in this city who are lost and don't know our Savior and they drive in great numbers past this intersection of Roslyn and Ritson, it would be a complete travesty to our God and a complete dishonor of His glory if that church building had a Muslim spire on it. And so it is absolutely imperative, no matter what it takes, how it will take work and it will take sacrifice, of course it will. 
but we can't allow uh, the work of God and the resources of God to be lost to a religion that offers no hope and steers people away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, we can't have this. We can't have spires, Muslim spires. And I want you to know something, that if you're to go downtown Oshawa on any given weekday, you will find little Anglo-Saxon boys and girls wearing Muslim garb because they go to a Muslim school that was, uh, is, is, was purchased by Muslims from the Catholic uh, school board, and they have a Muslim school in Oshawa. And they are raising up children to uh, oppose the work of Jesus Christ. So um, that's where this country is headed unless God's people are zealous for the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because um, on this Thanksgiving Sunday morning, I want to stress to you that I am convinced that the absence of thanksgiving in our hearts and in our lives, is what opens up the opportunity and the temptation for us to be disloyal to Jesus Christ. I believe the two are absolutely connected. Thankfulness to God and loyalty to God. Ingratitude toward God leads to disloyalty toward Jesus Christ. And I, I, we can, you can find it throughout the pages of Scripture, but I want to draw your attention to one section of Scripture this morning that Paul wrote to the Corinthians just before he talks about the Lord's table. And um, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. The chapter division here is a little bit... Um, um, uh, how, do I, how would I say it? It's, it's, uh, it's not smooth. Uh, chapter 10 should probably just been a long, long uh, part of chapter 9. So I'm going to keep reading right into chapter 10. Do you, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it <clears throat> to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For that, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, how did it go from all of these great things to nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them? God forbid that that would ever be a letter that would be written to the church at Calvary, the church at Oshawa. So um, what are the dangers? I, I just want to give you quickly, there are many dangers in our lives, but I want to give you quickly three dangers that really come out of the further reading of this text and, and um, an understanding since this text is fundamentally about an Old Testament example of unfaithfulness 
then I want to draw from that Old Testament situation and scenario to sort of bring you into an awareness of what these dangers are all about. Because you'll notice in verse 6 that it says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. So this is a caution to us. Examples from the Old Testament. So what were these scenarios? Well, um, the first danger that I want to make sure we are aware of is the danger of, of, um, that we face of going through the religious motions and rituals. Just going through with religious motions and rituals. Because fundamentally, we are more interested in the promises of God than in His presence, than in, his, than in a relationship with Him. And so we have come to the idea that maybe if I go to church, or I read my Bible, or I stand up when we stand up, or I throw some change in the offering plate, or stuff like that, or I give something to the poor, that maybe if I go through with religious rituals, that somehow God will bless me. Oh, bless me, bless me, God. I have done some, some religious things. And uh, rather, so we're interested... We're interested in the promises of God or in the blessings of God, but not necessarily in the presence of God, in, in an actual relationship with God. And so this is the danger of being, not being interested in God just because He's God. Now there's a second danger that is, is inherent in this particular section, and that is that we can become religious consumers. Uh, the first is that we might be uh, religious uh, ritualists, but the second is that we might become religious consumers. Um, if you remember back in um, the time just before they were to go in, or allegedly to go into the promised land and, and to go and spy it and to, to, to seek it and to uh, receive it from God, um, in Numbers chapter 11, it says there in the text that, that the people started to grumble to the leaders. And they started to grumble uh, because of the food that God was giving to them, the manna that he was giving to them. And they said, we, we miss the leeks and we miss the onions and, oh, we miss the garlic of Egypt. Now, I can honestly say that probably uh, for the rest of my life and from the past of my life, I have never said, uh, has never come out of my mouth, oh, how I miss leeks, oh, oh, how I miss onions, oh, how I miss garlic, and cucumbers, and fish, all the smelly things of life. A Caribbean buddy here is looking at me with some sort of disgust. But they did. And they said, there's a line there that they said, we have lost our appetite. And if you were to finish the sentence, for the things that God is giving to us. And that word there, appetite, is desire. We have lost our desire, or we have lost our passion for the food that God is supplying for us and how we long for a taste of the things that we used to have when we were enslaved in Egypt. These religious consumers, you know, go looking for churches to conform to their tastes. 
or their former tastes rather than a place that specializes in the transforming work of Jesus Christ. Are you one of those? Who longs for things to conform to your taste rather than the transforming work of Jesus Christ in the place where you already are, the provision that he's already made for you. These are the people who are dissatisfied with God's provision. The first were disinterested in God for God alone. The second are disinterested in God's provision. And there's a third danger. And this comes from the shortly after they were rescued out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 32. You can read there where um, they, uh, they said to uh, Aaron, who was... Uh, the time looking after the people we don't we don't even know where like Moses took off he, this is when he went to Mount Sinai to to get the Ten Commandments from God to get the law from God we, we don't even know where Moses is he's gone we, there's nobody to lead us and quite honestly we have no God to to go before us so Aaron um, we need God we need a God so Aaron tells them well give me all your jewelry and I'll uh, melt it down and I'll fashion a golden calf and, and that can be your God that, that can be your, the, the, the presence of God that'll be your God these are the people who search and attach other gods that seem more immediate solutions to their current problem where's Moses when we need him he's not around where's God for that matter I, I've got some real problems in my life and nobody seems to be helping me where are the spiritual leaders in my life and suddenly a different solution comes by medication some other substance some other attractive thing These are the people who distrust the adequacy of God alone to help us, to lead us. You know, and as Paul is delivering this, he's, he's saying, I, I can't understand what is wrong with God's people. This is who he's talking about here. He said, you look at athletes. Athletes are are completely committed and disciplined and passionate and, and sacrificial for a trophy or a crown that doesn't last. And he says, you know, I don't even understand that. I don't understand why people would put so much effort into something that really doesn't matter. And I look around myself and I, I see people who know the Lord Jesus Christ who has promised us something of eternal value, a crown that will last forever. He says, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he says, that's what I really discipline my life for. And, you know, Corinthians might have been thinking, well, yeah, that's you, Paul. You're a super apostle. You know, you're, a, you're Mr. Jesus and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the average regular person who hasn't really been engaged in all of these kinds of things, uh, it's, it's kind of normal not to have that much of a passion for God and all that stuff. He says, what, what, what? He said, don't you realize that all of these people, including you, but all of these people in the Old Testament, he said, 
when they were rescued out of the, they they were all under the same cloud. Now, what's this cloud business? You remember when the, the, the pillar of light led them by night and the cloud led them by day? It was the presence of God. It was the Spirit of God. He says, no, no, all of these people experienced the Spirit of God. He says, not only that, they, uh, they all went through the the sea. They all uh, went through the Red Sea when it was parted. They all experienced the uh, salvation of God from Egypt. It's not only that, they were all baptized into Moses or into the, uh, they identified with Moses the representation of God. And they ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, which is the Old Testament equivalent elements of the New Testament communion and an expression of salvation. That rock was Christ. No, no, no. These were not people who didn't experience the greatness of God in their lives. I'm writing to I'm writing to caution you to, to, to plead with you to, to help you understand that that you may have experienced salvation and you may have been baptized and you may have been led by the Spirit and you may have attended every communion service, but I'm telling you it's possible that God might not be pleased with you. So I want to share with you for a few moments this morning. The importance of recognizing what God has done for us. And not just recognizing it in our heads, but letting it so entrench itself in our hearts that we become radically thankful people. Radically thankful people. It will hold your heart to God. It will prevent you from disloyalty and lacking in devotion to Christ. I'm wondering if we have... If we have ever taken some time in our lives to consider the incredible grace of God toward us, the undeserved favor of God, not that there was anything good in you or me, but that God, because he loved us, gave us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and has lavished his grace upon us, his grace of salvation, rescued us. That we might be for the praise of his what? His glory. That we might have a passion for the glory of Jesus Christ. That in Oshawa and Whitby and, and, and the GTA and this Durham region. That we might be a people rescued and a people after the praise of the glory of Christ. Because we recognize how graced we are. That's what Paul's talking about here. And when you come to the communion table, which he's about to set up, he's saying, this is a table of thanksgiving. This is a table for, for, this is a time for us to remember how grateful we need to be to God. And it, it needs to propel into the weeks to come our passion for Christ. Not that we lose our appetite for the Lord, but that we regain our appetite for the great things of God. And that we would be willing to do anything, to sacrifice anything for the glory of Christ. That we would not allow any resources or any terrain to be lost 
to anyone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only should we hold, the, hold our ground, but we should be advancing the cause and glory of Christ. We can't close up any churches in Oshawa. Not a church. We have to advance and have more churches in Oshawa and Whitby and, and Bowmanville and Curtis. and That's about all I know of the Durham region. Now I know more than that. So, it is desperately sad when Christians use their free time, and I mean their rescued time. They're freed out of the bondage of sin to engage in the cultural worship practices of their unbelieving neighbors. Because if you do, you will find your life in a big, big mess. And there are a lot of Christians whose lives are in a big, big mess. And it isn't because they're too close to Jesus Christ. It's because they've allowed their lives to stray too far from him. So I want to answer the question this morning, how can I say thanks to God? How can you say thanks? And I'm going to give you seven very quick ways right from the text. You'll notice in verse 13 that it says there, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I am thankful because I'm able to keep saying no to, harm, to anything harmful in my life. Are you thankful for that? God has made it possible because of salvation through the power of Jesus Christ for you to be able to say no to sin. That's because of the grace of God. Titus uh, 2 verse 11 to 13 says, And the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. That's a grace. That's a gift of God to us. A gift of God to his children to say, you no longer have to say yes to sin. You don't have to. Not only do you not have to say, no to, or say yes to sin, but I promise you, I will provide a way of escape for every temptation that comes your way that you may run away from sin. Do you realize that? Temptations will come. We all face temptations. But in the facing of that temptation, here is the promise to be thankful for. God is providing a way of escape. You just have to take it. That's a grace of God. That's a gift of God that he has given to us. I'm thankful for that today. I'm thankful that I don't have to sin because sin ruins my life. The wages of sin is death. The paycheck of sin every time is death. It messes with our lives. And I'm glad. I'm glad today that I don't have to sin. But I want to notice, secondly, what else we don't have to do. It says here, in, um, and, and he, he says this right in, on the heels of this, Therefore, since you don't have to say yes to sin, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Therefore, my dear friends, flee. That's written in the present tense. Keep on running away from immediate solutions that would steal your heart away from God. That's what he's saying here. You can do this. God's grace will strengthen you. He enables you to run away from alternative, 
alternative gods. Flee idolatry. And he says here, I speak to sensible people. This is an interesting thing that God has done for us. In this, he has graced us to be sensible, not senseless. We are not senseless people. We are not dupes to idols. We are sensible people. Christ has invaded our life and made us sensible people. He says, I'm talking to sensible people. You, you realize that, that uh, if you latch your life to idols, they will destroy your life. It will ruin your life. You don't have to do that because of the grace of God, which has enabled you. Thirdly, look at, continue on with me in the text. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? As we come to this communion table and these elements, this symbolize the things that God has done for us. The cup symbolizes the salvation that we have received from the, by the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he says here that we can be thankful for what Christ has done for us and we can therefore live thankfully because we are now actually participants in the benefits of Christ's death for us. This is an amazing thing. We were formerly participants in the wrath of God. We, we used to be connected to the wrath of God, but now no longer. Because of what Christ has done for us, because of the grace of God, we can be eternally thankful because we have been rescued from the wrath of God, and now we are participants in the benefits of Christ. Every spiritual blessing is ours because of Christ Jesus. And when we drink that cup, we are acknowledging that we are participants in the sacrificial benefits of Jesus Christ who died in our place. Not only can we keep saying no to sin and keep running away from idols and live thanks, but notice what else it says here. It says here, um, and, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? We are able also to break our own bodies from any disloyal connections because now we have become connected to Christ himself. As sure as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are connected to Jesus Christ. As sure as the action, the physical action of taking these elements is true and is tasted and is real, we are connected to the body of Christ, not because of taking of the elements. We take the elements because we are connected to Christ. And this is the demonstration that we are. And we are thankful. And therefore, because we are connected to Christ, the Lord of glory. I mean, as Jordan said this morning, the, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who created all things, the one who holds all things. Listen, when I'm up in an airplane, and I was up in an airplane yesterday, eight miles above the earth. That's way too high for me. I don't think Kelvin likes it either. That's way too high for us. And I'm telling you, when I'm up eight miles in the air, it's a Jesus moment for me. I am like, thank you, Jesus that this plane is being held by your hand. And that's who, we, that's who is watching over us. And so why in the world, you, you, if you think for one second, I, I trust in engineers. I, 
or any, anybody who cranks nuts and bolts on things and has a bad day and didn't turn one on tight enough, you know what I'm saying? I, if you think I trust in anything, uh, anything like that, you are completely wrong. Uh, the only thing that puts me on an airplane, and I'm telling you, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't get on an airplane. Uh, the only thing that puts me on an airplane is my connection as a son of Jesus Christ, as a child of God. And I'm thankful for that. And you know what? I think everybody in the plane ought to be thankful that I'm on the plane. Because if I ain't going down, guess what? They aren't going down. And I'm telling you, if I was a pagan out there and didn't know Jesus Christ, I would ask the airlines, tell me, tell me what, if there's a Christian on this plane. Because if there isn't a Christian on this plane, I'm not getting on it. But if there's a Christian on, I might consider getting on the plane. You know what I'm saying? That's, uh, we break our bodies from disloyal connections. But look at Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. This is the communion reality. We are, because we are connected to Christ, we are connected to each other. In this one amazing family. And go around the world and meet Christians around the world and, and, and find out what it's like to be in this great family of God. There's nothing like it. It's a, it's a, it it's defies explanation. And, and um, you know, when, when we, of course, give out these, these, um, these wafers, it, it doesn't really symbolize. It's all these little chips. In some ways, it symbolizes the wrong thing. We're not, we're not a bunch of little... I, I was going to touch it, but I thought, no, that's a, that's a bad moment sanitation-wise. So I won't. But you see, you know, you know what the deal is. Listen, one Sunday in our church back in Chatham, I thought, you know, we've got to symbolize this loaf better because uh, the, the chips just aren't doing it. So we had a baker in our church, um, like a real baker, not like me, but, but someone who could actually bake things. And, uh, and I said to him, like, I need you to make me a manga loaf of bread, like a big loaf of bread, because I want to plunk that baby on the communion table, and I want the symbol of us as one body. And I said, we're going to have communion, and we're going to take pieces off that thing, you know. And, and so I was talking about the grace of God and the emblem of his amazing, lavish grace upon us, and, and, and that, you know, this loaf was representing that we're one body, and... And so I said, we're going to pass this, this loaf around the church. And, and I said, I want you to take a big, just dig your hand onto it, rip a piece off, and a, a piece that's, that would express the lavish love of God, and stick that in your mouth. And, and, um, and so, um, you know, it wasn't a good sanitation moment for us either, so I, I did get some complaints. But anyway, it, it, there was this, the, right at the front, there's this young man. He's just a neat guy. He, he was... Um, um, educationally challenged he was a challenged guy but he loved Jesus and uh, I watched him like the loaf goes to him and like he does exactly what I said he grabs that thing and rips a piece off and he jams it in his mouth and, and it wouldn't even fit like he's got oh, it's all out of his mouth and and uh, and that's the, that is the lavish grace of God that that is the representation it was perfect it, it bothered a lot of people but it was perfect because because it's the lavishness of God, and he took it in, and God is so lavish, and his grace is so great, you can't even contain it in your mouth. It wasn't possible, and, and 50 other people in the church could have picked pieces off and, and, and had a communion service, you know what I'm saying? But nobody was willing to do that, but they could have. We're in this one body, lavished with the grace of God. And then he says to 
them, and we'll quickly wrap this up. What is wrong with you? Verse 22. Is this the way you show your love for God, that you make him jealous? Is this the way you thank God? Because he's just mentioned that that they've been dabbling in idols and then running to the table of the Lord. They've been eating on Saturday night at the table of demons and then running on Sunday morning to the table of the Lord. You see, idols, while they are nothing supernatural, anything that steals your heart away from God is an attraction to the demonic. He says, why would you think you should do that? That you should, you should um, have a spiritual affair, as um, George Barn in his latest book calls it, a spiritual affair on God. That you would dabble in the demonic and, and then eat at the table of the Lord as well. And so he says, are you trying to make God jealous? Is that, is that the way you're wanting to show your gratitude to God? Are, are, you, are you, you think you're stronger than God? Is that what you're doing? You, you think that, that you uh, can take care of your life by yourself? You think you're stronger than God? I'm thankful today that I and we don't want to take God on through carelessly or intentionally flirting with demon enemies. And finally, he writes there, everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. I'm thankful that we are called to connect more tightly to Christ. That's why he made us free, not to try and live as far away from him or as loose from him as we can. You know, you've been set free to govern your life and live your life and all of that, but the bottom line that is told to us over and over in the scriptures, thankfulness to God is holding tight to him. You know, um, guys, maybe we need to illustrate it this way. How do you think your wife would um, take it if you said to her, I want to demonstrate to you how thankful I am for you. And here's how I'm going to show it. I'm going to spend as much time away from you as I can. I'm going to uh, hang out with a bunch of other different people and people who don't even like you. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to spend most of my time being as far away without actually getting totally away from you because, after all, we're married, so we're still married. I'm going to try and be as far away from you as I can. And that's how I'm going to show you that I'm thankful to you. I wonder how many of our wives would find that exhilarating. Say, yes, you're really thankful. Why would we do this to Jesus then? Why would we spend our lives seeing how far away we can get from him without falling away from him? And call that... Christianity. Call that being a follower of Jesus Christ. Everywhere in the scriptures and in human nature and sensibility, if I'm really thankful and I really love something, I demonstrate it by a really tight hug. Don't we? Hold fast to Jesus 
So as we now join this time of table, table commemoration, let's make it about thanksgiving for the lavish grace of God that our hearts might be passionate for the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, thankfulness for His grace will cause us to be radically loyal for His glory. The upside of this ministry will not be about grand vision and mission or marketing or great programs or even awesome people. It will be the fullness of God's grace lavished upon us, causing us to be gospel generous to the glory of God. And that's something to eat and drink to. Father, we praise you, we honor you, we lift up your name. You are truly amazing and worthy of all our praise and honor and glory. You have lavished us with grace, the grace of salvation in Jesus Christ. We are eternally alive, O oh God. So we thank you this morning, this Thanksgiving weekend, and may our hearts remain thankful throughout our lives that we might be loyal, radically loyal to the glory of God. For Jesus' sake, amen.